Hey y'all, we're trying something a little bit new. Um, this is uh, what we've been working on the past few months. This is episode one of 1982. Um, we hope you all enjoy it. The St. Louis Cardinals are a baseball organization that's been in existence since 1882 when they went by their original name, the St. Louis Brown Stockings. They eventually settled for Cardinals, but not after a 16-year run as the Browns and a one-year run as the Perfectos. This franchise is 140 years old, or 122 years young if you're going by Cardinals years, and just like anyone who's made it that long, they've seen some shit. This organization is one of the most storied around, but it wasn't easy at first. When St. Louis transitioned to the National League in 1892, they didn't enjoy a winning record until 99, when they were the St. Louis Perfectos. When they became the Cardinals, they spent the 1900s keeping the basement tidy. It wasn't until the 1920s with the help of Hall of Famers like Jesse Haynes, Jim Bottomley, and Rogers Hornsby that this organization started to write some good stories. The Cardinals to this day have won a National League leading 11 World Series in their lifetime, each of them memorable in their own right. There was no secret formula to their sustained success. The 1926 squad ended Game 7 pitching at 39-year-old Pete Alexander, who walked Babe Ruth in the ninth, who got thrown out trying to steal second to end the series. The 1940s club won three championships through sheer overwhelming firepower. The 2006 Cardinals limped into the playoffs with an 83-78 record before dispatching two division winners in the Padres and Mets, and eventually the 95-win Detroit Tigers. Hold a microscope over each of these teams, and we'll find oddities so minute they're almost miraculous. The 1982 squad won their World Series by adopting an unconventional style. They played a style of baseball that was, at the time, thought to be forgotten. They took advantage of their stadium's expansive outfield and artificial turf to create one of the best defenses for the decade. They hit the least amount of home runs, but won the fifth most amount of games. When they started the decade, they struggled to draw in a million and a half fans. By the end of the 1980s, they had doubled that attendance. They were called the Running Redbirds, and they won by becoming their manager. The early 1980s in America was a period of recovery from years of dejection and political despondency. The nation, not even a decade removed from the stinging defeat of the Vietnam War, as well as a political scandal that saw the then-current president resign in what seemed like a never-ending economic recession. The 1970s were filled with crises that seemed to repeat themselves every other year. Following the fallout of the Watergate scandal, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. His vice president, Spiro Agnew, a man described by the Maryland Bar Association as being morally obtuse, paid only a fine for a felony tax evasion. And, of course, nothing else. A couple years later, and under a new administration, Jimmy Carter commuted Nixon operative G. Gordon Liddy's sentence for his role in Watergate. Josh, Josh, let me pause your history lesson here to talk about my man, G. Gordon Liddy, who is the definition of an American patriot. Like, the time he organized a different break-in, uh, this time of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, or when he volunteered to assassinate newspaper columnist Jack Anderson, 
He also volunteered to kill Ellsberg, too, for his role in releasing the Pentagon Papers. I'm sorry to get on a tangent, but my favorite Liddy fact was during his time in prison, he would respond to black inmates insulting him by singing the Nazi anthem. Just, he loved his country so much. Just a, just a swell, swell guy. Yeah, he sounds like a real asshole. As I was saying, most infamously, the 1970s and early 1980s were plagued by economic instability. In 1973, OPEC enacted an oil embargo on nations that supported Israel in the Yom Kippur War. This coupled with the shit ton of money spent in Vietnam and a series of tax cuts starting under the Kennedy administration would ultimately create an unstable economy. As a sidebar, folks, we know you're here for baseball, but it's going to be important to remember this later on, so just bear with us. We're not economists. We're drunk cards fans. But some economic terms that might leap out at you are inflation and unemployment. Inflation is the price of goods and services. Employment rate is the amount of people in the workforce. Usually in episodes of economic regression, one can be used to combat the other. Boring! High unemployment rate? The government can just pass policy, or spend some money, or adjust interest rates. High inflation rate? Well, it's time to cut back on all those measures and let the unemployment rates go up. I got something we can inflate. It's a bullet in my head with all this fucking nerd talk. Yeah, Nick's right. Thank you! It's way more complicated than that. And honestly, we spent way too much time reading off what Forbes has to say about it. But the gist of it is, when inflation is high, unemployment is low. And when unemployment is high, inflation is low. It creates this very fragile balancing act on how many people shouldn't have a job to keep the price of milk down. Anyway, both of these bad things happened in the 1970s. High unemployment and inflation created a new term called stagflation. The stock market crashed on a level matched only by the Great Depression, eventually surpassed, of course, by the 2008 recession. High inflation would continue into the 1980s, despite the American economy growing under the Carter administration. Over 2 million people lost their jobs in this three-year span. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The 1970s were a period of malaise. The post-war American nationalism that dominated the globe was indeed emasculated. It all happened again in 1979. In the early 1950s, Iran's prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, more like this sucks dick, enacted a series of popular land and wealth redistribution policies. But in a more pressing maneuver, he nationalized Iran's oil fields. The United States and Great Britain didn't like that, so they backed a coup d'etat, ousting a democratically elected leader in favor of a monarchical authoritarian regime. Isn't that neat? Certainly won't happen again. Unless you're in the Western Hemisphere. Beginning in the 1960s, the U.S.-British-backed Shah began a series of cultural and economic reforms that backfired when the economic divide between Iran's working class and their aristocracy widened. In 1978, Iranian fundamentalists led by Rahala Khomeini began a revolution that ousted the U.S.-backed Shah a year later. 
the global market recoils, Iranian oil workers strike, Khomeini goes to war with Iraq a year later, and now one of the world's leading oil producers is suddenly not meeting the demands of the US. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the 1979 energy crisis. In 1979, a group of Iranian college militants stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and took 52 American hostages and held them captive for almost a year and a half. A lot of historians point to this as the end for Jimmy Carter, but really the death knell for his administration was to be the impending recession, something his administration had worked years trying to curb following the last one. We can shit on the Iranians all we want, but we drew first blood. We kind of deserved what they were about to do to us. You play schoolyard bully long enough, eventually someone's going to get tired of your bullshit and pull your pants down. In 1980, Jimmy Carter loses re-election in a monumental landslide. After 444 days in a grueling captivity, the 52 hostages in Tehran are released on January 20th, 1981. The same day as the inauguration of Ronald Reagan. Dorel Norman Elvert Herzog is quite a character. Um, before he invented a new way of playing baseball in plastic fields, he had a popular nickname that everyone called him, Rally. Rally was the middle child between older Herman and younger Cadell, and baseball was their life. They came from the small town of New Athens, a rural community about 40 miles east of St. Louis in central Illinois. So much of it reminds me of my small town in southeast Missouri, and in if you come from a small town, you probably feel the same way. During the early 20th century, it was a farming and coal mining town with a couple lumber mills. And like a lot of long-standing communities through the Missouri-Illinois corridor, it was predominantly German. It has about 2,000 people now and hasn't changed much since uh, Rally's time when the number of local denizens sat around 1,500. Rally and his older brother Herman were pretty good ball players. Their brother Codell, nah, not so much. But he was the guy we most relate to, a stats and numbers guy. Just like you. He took one at bat for the high school team where he hit a dribbler, back to the pitcher. Just like me. He didn't even run to first. He just went to the dugout and called it a career there. That's a funny guy. Growing up in this part of the country wasn't easy. The boys' parents, Edgar and Lieta Herzog, eked out a living for their sons. Edgar worked at a brewery until it burned down and then took a job as part of a highway crew for the state. His mother worked at a shoe factory. Relly uh, described his mom as a very clean and strict woman, so much so that he spent most of his time outside of the house. His dad had the distinction of never missing a day of work at the local brewery and imparted his sons with the wisdom of, be there early and give them a hard day's work, so when it comes to lay someone off, it'll be the other guy. This was a different time. Hard work was a virtue and part of your identity. Relly grew up through World War II and graduated high school in post-war America. This was when the American dream wasn't an illusion, where that kind of gumption and moxie could be rewarded. Today's go-getter hustler types sell bullshit crypto and NFTs. They promote MLM schemes and labor exploitation. It's not their fault. They're a feature of today's capitalist system. If it sounds like there's some friction between Relly and his dad, there was. The Herzog boys had a hustle for their money. Every morning he'd get up at 6, deliver newspapers, 
He sell bakery goods off of a truck. He dug graves for money and worked at the same brewery as his dad before it burned down. In 1992, an L.A. Times reporter asked him if he was close to his father, and Relly looked pained to answer, almost offensively. Every kid is close to his father, isn't he? And then a moment passes, and that feeling that every kid who grew up a little harder than the rest subsides. And he said, we were poor. Dad drank a lot. Women did the work. He never talked to me. The goddamn Germans are like that. My father only asked me if I needed money when he knew I had it. I supported myself since the seventh grade. Growing up, Relly was very talkative with people outside his family. His friends swear he had a great singing voice, and he was known as very good with women through his younger years. One writer described him as a real guy's guy. An expose on him right after he took over GM duties for the California Angels portrays a chatty and lively man. Sure, this piece highlights him rapid off various sexist, racist, and homophobic jokes. But his players loved him, and he signs autographs for fans that come up and talk to him, and then he comments to writer Pat Jordan that all the jokes he makes will hurt his Supreme Court nomination. He's a funny and charismatic guy, and he needed all that growing up. His brother Herman had a speech impediment that undermined his confidence and made him less audacious as Relly. It may be one of the reasons why after 1954, his professional career didn't pan out the same as his middle brothers. Relly knew he wasn't going to college, and although he reckoned himself a better basketball player, he was obsessed with baseball. On days when he could, he'd hitchhike up to Belleville and take a bus to St. Louis, where he'd pay a buck twenty-five to watch the Redbirds at Sportsman's Park. He was captain of the basketball team his senior year, and although he wasn't a great shooter, he still drew interest for his ball handling and speed from SLU in Illinois. He didn't follow in the path of his brother Herman, a shortstop. Instead, Relly was an outfielder, first baseman prototype, who pitched a little too. In his junior year, the 5'8", 130-pound Herzog led the team with a 584 average and took the New Anthem Yellow Jackets to the state championship, where they lost to Granite City 4-1. It's something he never quite got over and would follow him all the way through his managerial career. It's one of the first things he addresses when he finally gets the monkey off his back. Hey Ryan, sorry to interrupt, but a uh, quick aside. A lot of what you're getting about the man will know as Whitey is thanks to the writers of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. This piece, for example, was written by Dan O'Neill, who worked for the Post for 32 years. I love Derek Gould. As we get into the season, legendary writer Rick Hummel and the idiosyncratic Neil Russo will bear the lion's share of beat coverage. Um, these guys did exceptional work, and if you like this series, you should really consider subscribing to the Post-Dispatch. Um, anyway, carry on. Herzog played in the Yankees system, but was passed over for a guy named Mickey Mantle. He likes to point out that he got a larger sign-on bonus than Mantle by about $1,000. He was traded and bounced around the league and got real sick in 1963 while playing with the Detroit Tigers, where he called it a career after slashing 151, 303, 226, and 52 games. He didn't play enough games to qualify for a batting title. When asked about his release years later, Herzog said, We can't all be Mickey Mantle, can we? But it's during this time that really comes to know a few things. The first one come when he's playing in the Yankees D-League for the McAllister Rockets. We can't find anything too concrete. But it's during this time that a sportscaster noticed that Relly had some very blonde hair. And either because they forgot his name or hated him, they started calling him Whitey. 
Years later, someone would point out that he bore a striking resemblance to the Yankees pitcher Bob Kusava, almost like a white rat. It was before his retirement. Maybe he knew he wasn't cut out for this playing crap. Whitey joined the Army Corps of Engineers during the Korean War. While he was stationed at Fort Leonard Wood, he managed the camp's baseball team, and he found he had a knack for it. During spring training in 1955, legendary Yankees manager Casey Stengel took Whitey under his reign, as if almost sensing he'd become a manager in the future. After he traded him to Washington, Stengel assured him that he'd get back if he had a good year. Unfortunately for Whitey, he didn't. Herzog was offered a job by Kansas City A's owner Charlie Finley in 1964. He pounced on it and became a base coach for the A's in 1965. When Charlie Finley refused to give him a raise, he told them to get their donkey to coach first base and head to New York, where he became the Mets Director of Player Development for the next six years. He was Gil Hodges' successor for managing duties whenever he would decide to step down, but Hodges died suddenly of a heart attack and the job went to Yogi Berra. Of course, Whitey saw it as a snub and took a two-year contract to manage the Texas Rangers, a team that lost 100 games the previous season. I'm sure it hurt a little bit. Whitey didn't complete his contract with Texas. Hell, he didn't even make it through his first full season. At 47 and 91, he was fired and eventually replaced by Billy Martin. Over in the National League, fucking goofy-ass Yogi Berra led the Mets to an 82-win season in the god-awful NL East and took them to the World Series where they lost to the Charlie Finleys, now Oakland Athletics, in seven. They did this with players he scouted for them and lost to the team he was a coach on less than a decade ago. Following this, he coached some bases for the Angels before getting a call from the Kansas City Royals in 1975. The Royals had just fired third-year manager Jack McKeon after a 50-46 and 46 start that saw them recently come off a 2-10 stretch. The abrasive McKeon had lost the locker room, and Royals GM Joe Burke was looking for someone to fill the void. Burke was GM for the Rangers when he hired Herzog to steer that team, and he too got the boot by the end of September. They were friendly, although by the end of Whitey's tenure, they'd have a way more complicated relationship. Whitey was on the short list that included KC native Hank Bauer, Orioles Billy Hunter, and oh shit, is that Billy Martin? You know, George, as painful as it is, I've had to let a few people go over the years. Yogi Berra, Lou Pinella, Bucky Dent, Billy Martin, Dallas Green, Dick Hauser, Bill Burden, Billy Martin, Stump Merrill, Billy Martin, Bob Lemon, Billy Martin. Holy shit, it's Billy Martin. Listen. Whitey's had his struggles with the front office, but nothing quite like old Billy Boy here. He was fired after one season with the Minnesota Twins. This wasn't a bad team or performance. They won 97 games and went to the ALCS, but Billy goddamn Martin had a reputation for being a bit of a douche, as well as a drunk. He kicked the vice president out of the locker room, he got plastered on road games, and when asked by Calvin Griffith why he would do the things he did, Martin would reply, because I'm the manager. After the Twins, he managed the Detroit Tigers for three seasons, made the playoffs in 72, regressed the following year when his off-field antics followed him from Minneapolis, and after criticizing the front office publicly, he was let go. Oh, 
And then there's the Rangers, the team he took over from Whitey. Rangers owner Bob Short, who made a fortune selling plumbing pipes, said he'd fire his own grandmother to hire Billy. The Rangers won 84 games the next season, and Martin AL Manager of the Year. But hold up, you know where this is going. Martin couldn't stop his excessive drinking. He punched a male traveling secretary on the road. He publicly criticized the owner by saying he knows as much about baseball as I do about the pipe. And the coup de grace of all of this was on July 20th. He had the stadium PA play, thank God I'm a country boy, during the seventh inning stretch. After which, he was immediately fired. God damn, dude. What a, what an asshole. The gold standard of assholes. Just an all-encompassing black hole of an asshole. Fucking stupid drunk idiot. God, they don't make them like they used to. You'll notice a trend here about Whitey if you haven't already. Whitey was the best at everything he did. He routinely touted he was the best manager in the NL, and when pushed back on that, he cited a 1983 players poll that voted him best manager in the National League. His departure from the Mets was a rocky one, but on the way out, he assured he was the best they ever had. He scolded the Rangers team in front office, saying they were the worst excuse for a big league club I ever saw. He demanded the A's pay him more as he thought he was their best coach despite no experience at the time. To be fair, he could back all that up. Finley touted him as his best coach in 65. The Rangers improved, but didn't fare much better under Billy Martin. The players he scouted and developed took the Mets to a World Series win in 69 and an appearance four years later. As a GM, he was well respected by scouts and his competitors. Cleveland GM Hank Peters once said, He don't lie. If you're horseshit, he tells you to your face. He's the best judge of talent I ever saw. Whitey was more sensitive than he let on. Perhaps this was a result of his rougher upbringing and how the undersized outfielder was passed over again and again and came up short in the spur of the moment. Eh, sure, he was defensive, but much to his credit, he often backed it up and just like in his younger years, he played with a chip on his shoulder. McKean's tenure brought a lot of instability to the Royals clubhouse. While he wasn't the authoritarian like Martin, McKean was said to have been a negative and critical presence. He failed to communicate to his players and take any advice that didn't come from him or his yes-men. He didn't get along with the press, even though papers like the Kansas City Star would go out of their way to say he was a competent baseball strategist. He didn't have that leadership quality for a big league club yet. Jack would win a World Series almost 30 years later as a 72-year-old for the Florida Marlins, his only playoff run. And he holds a couple unique distinctions as the only MLB manager with a thousand plus wins and less than a thousand losses, and the only manager with a thousand wins at both the major and minor league level. After feuding with bench and hitting coaches through spring training and well into the season, starting pitcher Steve Busby threatened to quit the team. In July, Jack was let go. This kind of instability would be a lot for anyone. Hank Bauer had been out of the game for over five years. Billy Hunter had no managerial experience despite being a third base coach for 14. And we just gave you over 250 words about the shit show express that is Billy Martin. If Joe Burke was going to find a suitable replacement, he'd have to turn to an old familiar friend. It had to be Whitey. Kansas City sports reporters were content with Herzog's pick who immediately after his hiring said he was going to go hang out with his players. I'm not kidding. 
He wanted to know his players better and to get a feel for them. He'd go on to write how he wasn't like his friend and colleague Dick Williams, another legendary manager who preferred to present himself as an authority figure. Whitey bonded with all of his players, learning their wives and kids' names. He spent more time with his bench players than he did his stars. He took players fishing, he drank beer with them. He really just dudes rock. He would even bet players a dollar for hitting the ball on the ground or behind the runner during a hit and run, a technique he deployed even in his first job in Texas. If there's one thing you'll learn about Whitey, is that he's going to come off as a very complicated and sometimes contradictory man. He'll develop this opinion that baseball has been made worse by greedy players and agents, that money has ruined the relationship between players and managers, and especially fans, but his one constant, the one principle he won't compromise over about the game, is that baseball is about people. At the time, Whitey's assessment of the Royals was that they were a good but inconsistent hitting team. Solid defensively, uh, shaky pitching, but elite speed. He saw potential with the squad, but he saw a lot of potential in the stadium they played in because it had AstroTurf. The use of Whitey Ball is credited by baseball writer Bill James as being one of the most impactful strategies to affect baseball. Today, only five teams have fake grass of some sort. But during the 1970s, 11 teams had turf fields, with the 12th joining in 1982 with the opening of the Twins' new stadium. The first use of it came in 1965 at, well, you guessed it, the Astrodome. The product mirrors a lot of the anguish from the 1970s we mentioned. It was cheap, easy to deploy, but most of all, it was multi-purpose. A lot of stadiums that sprang up in the 1970s and 80s were also home to football teams, and a lot of these teams were in the National League. By 1982, eight of the 12 teams that had AstroTurf resided in the NL. It's in Kansas City that Whitey begins developing this new technique to play to the Royals' spacious outfield and their fake-ass grass. By 1982, he'll have perfected it. Constructing a team like that was simple in his eyes. Speed and patience. Speed to cover alleys, steal bases on the turf, and take the initiative on balls in play. In addition to speedy fielders and aggressive base running, Whitey also believed in the idea of a super bullpen. And lefty-ready matchups, not entirely unheard of for his time, but rarely did a manager play the matchup game quite as aggressively as the White Rat. After taking over from McKeon and getting a knack for his crew, the Whitey-led Royals won 15 of their next 20. In typical Whitey fashion, he stepped on a few toes by benching fan favorite Cookie Rojas, but in his place he started the rookie Frank White, who by the end of his 18-year career in Kansas City would play in 2,324 games, second most in franchise history behind teammate George Brett. In fact, the top five Royals in games played were all teammates during Whitey's era, a true testament of loyalty. With a new sense of pride, these Royals almost willed themselves back into division contention against the mighty Oakland A's. But that 11-game deficit at the end of McKeon's tenure was too much for this red-hot ball club. Whitey turned Kansas City into a juggernaut. In 76, they hit nearly as many triples as they did home runs. They also stole the second-most bases in the AL with 218. Their team ERA ranked second in the AL. Relievers Mark Littell and Steve Mingori lit a bullpen that posted 35 saves, 
At the end of the 76th season, they had won 90 games and the ALS crown. One of his contract stipulations was a $50,000 bonus if the Royals drew over 2 million fans, something Whitey coerced Burke into writing into his contract. And while the rat will tell you he hit that number every season, the truth was about half. Nevertheless, attendance went from 1.15 million in 1975 to 1.68 in 76. And by 1978, Whitey was clearing 2 million with ease. This 76 squad, led by not a single hitter with 20 home runs, had a date against the 97 win New York Yankees, who were managed by. Oh, not this asshole again. You guessed it. The New York Yankees were managed by Billy fucking Martin. Sports are not as simple as good versus evil. Rarely is something easy as a righteous cause is reified in a sport so heavily based on luck. Perhaps Billy Martin is Whitey Herzog's mortal enemy, his arch rival. He took his job once and nearly did again. The Bronx Bombers had the second best offense and best pitching staff in the American League. They were led by Thurman Munson in his MVP season and last year's Cy Young runner-up Catfish Hunter. They wrapped up their division so early in September that not even a four-game sweep to the second-place Baltimore Orioles could worry them. The Royals had no MVPs or Cy Young winners. They could steal but had to manufacture their runs. They led the AL with 71 sack flies, their first baseman John Mayberry leading the way with 12. Last year, Mayberry posted a 168 OPS+, plus, the best in all of baseball. But this season, his OPS dropped 300 points to 663. Didn't matter. He drove in 95 runs. The Royals held a 12-game divisional lead in August, but nearly squandered it when they dropped nine of their last 11 for the season to finish two and a half games ahead of Oakland. This will begin three consecutive trips to the ALCS, all against the New York Yankees, and each time, Whitey's Royals will come up short. In 1976, Mark Little gave up an iconic walk-off homer to Chris Chambliss. Yankees owner George Steinbrenner will comment that the best manager didn't win that night, much to Billy Martin's chagrin. Hearing Whitey describe it, he doesn't really blame anything else that happened in the game except for one thing, when he swapped 6'2 center fielder Al Cohen's with 5'8 Hal McRae. You can watch the homer yourself, but Whitey states that the ball had cleared the fence by only 6 inches. And that if he didn't make the defensive swap, things might have been different. Great sixth game in the World Series a year ago, and then the seventh game, too. What a way for the American League season to end. A spunky young Kansas City team. Look at them, Bob Chris Chambliss. In 77, Herzog's Royals would win 102 games, going 24-1 from August 31st to September 25th. These same Royals labored the first two months, entering June 21-23 and 23 before going on a 81-39 and 39 tear that saw them take the division by eight games. In addition to sporting the second-best base stealers, Whitey also had four guys with 20 or more homers. He had starter Dennis Leonard, who baseball legend Peter Gammons described at the time as having the third-best slider in the game, along with 18-game winner Jim Colburn and a tried-but-tested bullpen that had three guys with 10 or more saves. What they didn't have and what Whitey lamented was a stopper. Even before his firing, Whitey would develop an incredibly tense and fractured relationship with owner Ewing Kaufman and GM Joe Burke. 
Herzog never really felt in control, and while he had a good squad, he didn't have the authority to build and shape a team in his image, a winning image that took advantage of the stadium's plastic grass and big dimensions. In Whitey's view, Kaufman didn't care about winning, or the people he employed, and wanted to take credit for everything. He personally hated that Whitey convinced Burke to add that attendance clause, going so far as to say Herzog had nothing to do with drawing that many fans. Kaufman and Burke told Whitey to basically forget free agency because they wouldn't sign a player to a contract larger than George Brett's, and they held to that. Their only free agent signing was a utility infielder named Jerry Terrell, and it was for $40,000. When Whitey asked both men to go after free agent pitcher Goose Gossage, they told him no, and when the Yankees scooped him up for $600,000 and trotted him out to the mound, Whitey could only counter with fucking Doug Bird. The Yankees rallied from a 3-1 deficit in the deciding Game 5 to win 5-3. The next year, they mopped up the Royals in four games. While the Yankees spent every last of their resources to field an army, the Royals were too busy pinching pennies. Whitey described it as going into a duel without a musket. In 1979, the Royals finished in second place, four games out from the division-winning Angels, and despite setting a franchise record for attendance, that season, Ewing Kaufman, he canned Whitey. He thinks the final nail was him not wanting to play Clint Hurdle, a local talent who won minor league player of the year. He recalls getting into a screaming fight with Burke when he asked that Clint be demoted for bad defense. The death knell came sooner, honestly. The Burks and Kaufmans, they, they had a different philosophy than Whitey, one that centered around money, egoism, and frugality. In Herzog's mind, they weren't about people. The most important part. During the 1980s, there was a sort of reconciliation with baseball's connection to drugs in the 70s and 80s. In 85, in exchange for immunity, numerous current and former Pittsburgh Pirates players, along with others, testified about their struggles with amphetamines and cocaine. Whitey managed a lot of these guys, like Daryl Porter and Willie Wilson. When he went to Burke and Kaufman to try and get help for the situation, they called him a liar and kicked him out of their office. He was gone the minute he started. Whitey would later say that when Burke was on his deathbed, He'd tell him that he was right about a lot of things, especially Clint Hurdle. When you read what he had to say about his time in Kansas City, you feel like you're reading a man who thinks he's cursed. He said, all my life, I've been good enough to get my team close. That was true when I was a kid, and it was true still when I coached and managed. He recalls losing a state basketball game his junior year by a point in a game where he missed three free throws. He recalls that baseball game where he missed the fly ball. He brings up swapping out McCray in 76 or letting Larry Gura stay in too long in 77. He regrets not putting his foot down even though he knew he was going to be fired. Even after he got the monkey off his back in 82, Whitey felt cursed from the Dankager call or losing Coleman in a freak accident in 85. He lost his two best hitters in Terry Pendleton and Jack Clark in 1987 when he took the Twins to seven games. Until he was finally inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2010, he feared those curses he could never overcome would keep him out of Cooperstown. But that's not the story we're going to tell you. Whitey hated every owner who hired him. Well, not every owner. He respected Charlie Finley. Although he'd go on to say that the man was a control freak with a bad ego. It's an interesting trend about wealthy baseball owners. They can't seem to think their shit doesn't stink. But there was one guy Whitey respected, and that was August Anheuser-Busch Jr. You probably know the name as that of the St. Louis Beer Baron, 
but Gussie Bush should be more famous for being the man who saved baseball in St. Louis. Previous owner Fred Sy, like all rich assholes, evaded taxes for a few years until he got busted. Of course. More like Fred lie. What a dumb shithead. He spent six months in prison, and when he got out, he was given the ultimatum to either sell the team or be banished from baseball. At first, Cy couldn't find a buyer in the area. This was due in some part to the schemes of the St. Louis Browns owner, Bill V, who encouraged investors from out of town to make bids on the team. Veek would move the Browns to Baltimore the following year. A consortium of Houston businessmen were set to make an offer and plan to move the Cardinals to Texas. But out of nowhere came Gussie fucking Bush, who convinced Cy to sell the team to him for $3.75 million out of civic duty. It's June 1980. The St. Louis Cardinals suck ass under manager Ken Boyer. Boyer took over for Vern Rapp in 1978 and won 86 games in 1979. But this year is brutal, as the 49-year-old Cardinal legend saw his team drop 13 of 14 in a two-week span in May. After dropping the first three of a four-game series against the Expos, Boyer was shown the door. This is a team with some big contracts and not a lot of discipline. They blast music in the public or in the clubhouse after a loss, they get drunk in their hotel rooms, and they don't hustle on the field. Their lackluster play prompted Cardinals first baseman Keith Hernandez to say this team was the worst he ever played on. By the time the news came of his firing, Ken Boyer said he had expected it and didn't feel a thing. He was fired in between a doubleheader, prompting coach Jack Kroll to take up the mantle for Game 2 and lead the Birds to a 9-4 loss and a four-game sweep. Gussie Bush had a reputation for only offering one-year deals to his managers. Whitey saw a lot of himself in the 81-year-old beer magnet, saying they both were a couple of square-headed, no-bullshit Midwestern Germans. He said Bush loved testing people to see what kind of metal they had, and if he liked you, he would trust you with his life. In the years to come, Whitey would hold Gussie in high esteem, and when the old man died in 1990, it kind of zapped Herzog's love for the game. Bush's offer was one year for $100,000. Far less money than Whitey was making in KC. Herzog didn't mince words. He never did. He told him that he won three consecutive division titles and finished in second place once. It wasn't going to be about the money, but about the commitment. He told Gussie Bush, thanks for the offer, but I'm not signing any more one-year contracts. He shook his head and headed for the exit. But Gussie Bush, he wouldn't let Whitey walk. Just like he wouldn't let the Cardinals walk. As he would say later in the week, he was impressed by this very opinionated, hard-headed Dutchman and that Whitey was his type of manager. No argument. He told Whitey to stop and sit down. He said, the damn players get five-year contracts. You can get a three-year, you son of a bitch. Hey all, that is episode one of 1982. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, we'll be covering more in the future. Um, next couple weeks we should have another episode out for you if you enjoyed this series. Uh, we'll cover 
few more topics uh, like Andy Meser- Smith, um, Kurt Flood, the tenure of Bowie Kuhn as commissioner of baseball, as well as drugs in the 1970s and 80s. We'll also examine um, the first term underneath Ronald Reagan and the moves Whitey made when he was promoted to GM, um, how he built his team and made some controversial trades to go along with it. And then uh, eventually, I mean, month by month for the whole season, all the way up until the World Series. If you like this, please uh, go to our website, The Worst Blog in Baseball, read some of our stuff. Follow us on Twitter, um, and obviously go to our Patreon and give us money if you feel like you'd like to buy us a cup of coffee. Uh, Thank you for listening. We love you all.